The SEC's race to find rock bottom continues after another bleak Saturday of college football in what's supposed to be America's best college football conference. Welcome into SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. As always, we promise to give it to you unfiltered here, and we're going to pull no punches through three weeks of the season. SEC doesn't look real good, and Saturday was no exception to that. Georgia had a bad first half against South Carolina. Its credentials as the number one team in the nation are now in question. Alabama struggled from wire to wire against South Florida. South Florida team that's won just five games in its last 40 times out. Five and 35. It's last 40 times out, and Alabama had all it could handle. Another top 10 team, Tennessee. It went down on the swamp as per usual. And Arkansas loses at home to BYU. So, John, can we say unequivocally at this point that the SEC is not the best conference in college football, at least this season? Or is it still a little early for that for you? It's not too early because how many more non-conference games will you play? To me, it's at least second to a lame duck league. (laughs) I take the Pac-12 over the SEC right now. Not long-term, but just this season, look what's happening. Who would have thought that Missouri would be the flagship football program for September in this league? The win over Kansas State's better than anything else the SEC has produced. I guess let's start at the top because the SEC's best bet to produce a national champion this year, I think most of us agreed, uh, you and I agreed, was was Georgia. Uh, As infrequently as we've seen it in college football for a team to three-peat, if you just looked at at the rosters, Georgia had a good group coming back, had to replace some key components, including its quarterback Stetson Bennett and offensive coordinator Todd Munkin, and and I think that's rearing its head in the first couple weeks of the season. We could say, you know, the first two weeks maybe Georgia was just, you know, sleepwalking to wins against clearly inferior opponents. We see teams do that sometimes, play with their food. We've seen Georgia do that in in these seasons where it's won national championships. But Saturday was different. Saturday was an SEC opener uh, against South Carolina. Some call this a a rivalry game. Maybe South Carolina considers it a little more of a rivalry than, than Georgia. But in any case, first conference game, here's your chance to impress. And Georgia's opening kickoff went out of bounds. And and that set the tone for a, a sloppy first half. Georgia, you know, no real big plays, no no big punch offensively throughout the first half. Now, quickly in the second half, they they righted the ship. They took care of business, intercepted Spencer Rattler a couple times, and, and the offense became efficient enough to get it done. But still, just 24-14 over a South Carolina team that had lost to North Carolina in the season opener. So we're going to get to Alabama in a bit, John, but let's start with Georgia. One through 10, what's your level of concern with Georgia right now? With one being, there's nothing to see here. Hand them the trophy. Georgia's just messing around with a couple games, but the glory is theirs. And 10 being, my gosh, hit the panic button, fire everybody, bench everybody. It's a five alarm fire. Uh, I would go with five. Uh, 
I think because you hold Georgia to a different standard, its goal is the third consecutive national championship. So if, do I think Georgia's not going to have a bowl, make a bowl game? No. Do I think, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it were still being a new year six bowl. It'll probably be in the college playoff again, but we we've seen things. First of all, South Carolina is not a good football team. It's pretty much a one-man gang of Spencer Rattler on offense. Then, lo and behold, he loses his number one receiver in the first half against Georgia. Antoine Wells goes out. Uh, not great on defense either. The offensive line's a mess, has had some injuries. So that's not a good team, yet it hung in there with Georgia. That's not supposed to happen. Carson Beck, Georgia's quarterback, looks good throwing the ball. And Lad McConkey, its top wide receiver, is not playing. So I look at those things and I think, okay, Beck may turn out to have a good season. Uh, the Bulldogs will be better when McConkey's back in there. But I don't see any game breakers at running back. None of those running backs scare me. Now they can get me a first down. Um, yeah, they can uh, grind it out. But. Uh, with Land McConkey out of the game, you had Dominic Lovett coming in there from Missouri, 56 catches last year. Ra-Ra Thomas from Mississippi State coming in. I just don't see playmakers. And you know, playmakers decide those playoff games. They win, They say defense wins championships. Now I think playmakers win championships. Stetson Bennett did last year. So I'd say a five with Georgia right now. Yeah, and – you know, it's one of those deals, the first half, South Carolina, they got the ball first. They go on this long scoring march that chewed up, you know, several minutes of the clock. Georgia had a had a long 13-play drive in which they missed a field goal. Like, of, of the problems facing Georgia right now are the potential warning signs, I guess. <laughs> I mean, special teams may be the, may be the biggest concern. We, we talk about uh, the loss of, of Stetson Bennett and uh, Todd Munkin, but let's not forget that they lost their, their kicker too, Jack Bodden Lesney uh, from, from last season. And it's been a bit of, a, of an adventure with, with Peyton Woodring as the kicker this season. And so, you know, it was kind of a weird first half where, where Georgia only got just a few possessions. One of them was, like I said, a long march that probably should have resulted in, in points, but there was a missed field goal. And you look up at halftime and it's 14-3, but you know, I mentioned those long drives, and it sort of illuminated that Georgia's struggling right now, I think, with, with the big plays. You know, the last couple seasons, this had the reputation of a team that was winning on defense, and its offense would, would do enough to get it done. But that was sort of a misconception. Georgia could rip off big plays with the best of them, with, with the, their two national championship teams, and we're just not seeing that same kind of firepower with this offense. You mentioned Carson Beck. He's, he's been accurate. He's been steady handed, you know, all those things, but we're not seeing the type of, you know, 30 yard plus plays, uh, whether it be from, from the past game or the run game that we saw in the past couple seasons. And that just leaves you with such little margin for error in special teams and defense, if you're not going to supply those big plays offensively. And, and I think, you know, of all the losses, 
you know, player wise from Georgia's national championship team this past year, I'd thought throughout the off season, and I'm wondering even more now if the departure of offensive coordinator, Todd Monken, who is a very good play caller for Georgia the past two seasons, if that's the most glaring exit of all. Yeah. You see, you mentioned the big plays. A lot of those big plays were concocted by Monken and then executed by Bennett and both guys are gone. Uh, Mike Bobo had success as an offensive coordinator there, but he didn't, he didn't make a lot of headlines. It wasn't as though you went into a game thinking, oh my gosh, what, what will Mike Bobo call? What do we have to be prepared for? Who knows? This guy's a genius. Teams felt like that had been about Todd Monken. And I thought his play calling against Ohio state with the game on the line was, uh, was instrumental in that victory. Of course, Bennett still had to execute it. It's that combination. And Georgia has neither one now. So we're just not seeing big plays. And I think another factor is Jalen Carter on defense. I mean, Georgia still has really good players on defense. But he was special in that he occupied blockers. Disregard his stats. You just kind of had to double team that big guy to get him out of the way. And it just freed other players to make plays. Uh, I, I just think what you were talking about and describing what happened against South Carolina, the Georgia we know and think of as winning a third string, a third straight national championship doesn't fall behind South Carolina at home 14 to three. It just doesn't happen. I, I'm probably with you in my ranking, you know, with the one through 10 on the panic meter or level of concern, whatever we're calling this, I'd probably go with about a five. Part of that though is aided by Georgia's schedule, which we've, we've talked about at length here in, in past episodes. It's, it's about as favor of a, favorable of a, a schedule as you can have in the SEC. They get uh, another cupcake this week. They'll have a home game against UAB, which UAB is, is 0-2 against FBS opponents this year. It's only win came against a team from the FCS ranks. So you know, Georgia should coast this week. And then it'll be tested a little bit more in, in the following weeks, but it's not exactly the meat of the SEC. And it's really not until, I guess, a mid-November game against Ole Miss where I feel like Georgia's going to have to play a, a, a top 15 opponent. So, you know, I'm not hitting the panic button on Georgia yet, but this team does seem to be a little bit stripped of, of star power. And you can win national championships with, with a collection of a bunch of really good players and, you know, a team that doesn't make a lot of mistakes and all that. But it's just harder if you don't have those stars, if you don't have that big play mat- potential. So, yeah, I, I'd go somewhere in the middle. It, it's, it's not nothing that Georgia was tested by South Carolina throughout two quarters of that game. But I don't know that it, it screams to me that they're not making the playoff either. And like I said, part of that's because they'd probably have to lose twice to miss the playoff or, or at least get blown out once. And I don't know who's, who's going to do that on the schedule. Blake, if Georgia weren't going for a third consecutive national title, I think we would look at it completely differently. It, we would look at it as a program that has had uh, a million players drafted in the past two seasons. Uh, 
and it doesn't have quite as much talent now. Lost its offensive coordinator. Not a rebuilding year, but just kind of a a little bit of a drop-off. It happens with everybody. You, you don't win a championship every year, and I think this team can do that. I don't think there's any doubt it can still have a good season, win double-figure games, but we hold it to a different standard because of what's at stake, and that, I, that to me, makes a big difference. Talk about a program that's usually held to a different standard, John. We're going to apply the, the same 1 through 10 meter here for Alabama because I believed, I think many believed, after that loss to Texas that there were real problems facing Alabama. And yet I thought, okay, here comes South Florida. I don't care that the game was on the road. I mean, you look at that crowd on Saturday – there's as much crimson in the stands as, as anything. I mean, it's sort of inexplicable that Alabama would play a road game against South Florida, but let's face it, not not among the most menacing environments in America. So I thought Alabama would just would just crush the Bulls, right? I mean, this has been one of the worst FBS programs the last several years. Uh, they've been terrible, frankly, for, for several years now. And Alabama, they, they benched Jalen Milrow. They cycled through Tyler Buckner who was not good. Then they they tried Ty Simpson, who was slightly better, but still not very good. Uh, thankfully for Alabama, the, the defense played up to the Alabama standard, I guess. But the offensive line remains a glaring issue. And now here Alabama sits 2-1 and one with that loss to Texas, no margin for error in terms of their college football playoff hopes. And Ole Miss, undefeated Ole Miss, an Ole Miss team that took them to the brink last year and has one of the nation's highest scoring offenses comes to town on Saturday, Alabama going back to quarterback Jalen Milrow. I'm not sure they ever should have went away from him. We talked about this last week, one through 10. What's your level of concern on the meter for Alabama? I would say a 10. Um, no, all the, all the way to the top, all huh? the way to the top, because I look at Alabama. Okay. You lose to Texas at home a big shootout, big game. You've got the home field advantage. Don't just lose, but lose not looking good. That's one thing. But playing South Florida and you're not up four touchdowns at halftime, that's really glaring. If you compare those rosters, uh, recruiting rankings, tradition, whatever, South Florida is just a a pushover. Uh, I mean – it's uh, Vanderbilt without the uh, SEC logo. It should be worth – Vanderbilt should be favored over South Florida. And the way Alabama struggled, and after – I didn't have to watch much of that. Alabama shouldn't have gone away from Jalen Milrow. I agree with you there. That He's not a great quarterback, but he's a great athlete. He he can make run. He can make plays. He's got a strong arm, but he can run. He was a, he's an outstanding runner. He can turn a five yard gain into a fifty yard gain. What else do these other quarterbacks give you? Because there's no there's not all this super talent around them. You talked about Florida. Who on Alabama's offense? If you're a defensive coordinator, who scares you? Who do you think? Who keeps you up at night thinking, okay, how can we keep him from getting the ball? We don't want this guy to get in the open field. 
Yeah, there, there's really nobody, and that's what's so glaring about this offense because it's the quarterbacks and it's everything else, too. We talked about whether Georgia maybe lacks some star power as compared to the last two seasons. Where's the star power on Alabama? It's nowhere to be found. Uh, but, there, there's no stars on this team, either side of the ball, frankly. And I go back to the offseason, John, and Alabama fans have kind of come to accept that Nick Saban's got a bag of tricks, um, and it's almost magical. When a coordinator leaves, Nick Saban just sits back and smiles and says, <laughs> perfect, I can reach into my magic bag here and pull out a coordinator better than the one before. Well, that didn't happen this offseason. He hired Tommy Reese, whose offenses at Notre Dame regressed year after year, had three offenses at Notre Dame. Year two was worse than year one. Year three was worse than year two. Has an infatuation with tight ends. Um, I'd <laughs> rather have a guy who's got an infatuation with good quarterback play uh, in this day and age. And Nick Saban needed someone like a Dan Mullen. And I'm not saying he didn't try to hire Dan Mullen. There's been reports out there about what that attempt may have, have been. Dan Mullen has publicly said that he likes his job at ESPN and has kind of alluded to the fact that it's going to take something special to get him back on the sidelines. I don't know that a coordinator opportunity was enough to, to obviously it wasn't, or he'd be doing that. Um, and so Saban hired Tommy Reese, young guy, young guy who, as I said, had been regressing at Notre Dame and Alabama wanted to get back to bully ball. In reality, this is boring ball. They, they have no punch. <laughs> they have no offensive line. And although Jalen Milrow in his first, in that tech, the Texas game, he, he didn't do much to help himself. I didn't think his coordinator did much to help him either. You know, Alabama's going to go up against Lane Kiffin and, and Ole Miss this week. Think what Lane Kiffin would do with this offense. First of all, he'd be drawing up a lot more quarterback runs. You know, not just using Milrow in scramble mode, which is mostly the way we've seen him running it. He'd be running Jalen Milrow at every opportunity. Jackson Dart at Ole Miss leads all SEC quarterbacks in rushing yards this year. Lane Kiffin loves him a running quarterback. Just imagine what he would do with Jalen Milrow. He'd crank up the tempo. He'd help out that offensive line by putting the defense on their heels with some tempo. I mean, a Lane Kiffin offense would look totally different than what we're getting here this year from from Tommy Reese. And like I said, it, it, there, there's just a glaring lack of, of playmakers uh, at Alabama. You don't have the quarterback. I don't see a ton of answers there. I think it's right to go back to Milrow. Don't know that they ever should have went away from him in the first place because there were so many other issues around him. I don't know if I'd go all the way up to 10 on the panic meter just because maybe you and I have different definitions of that number because I feel like our level of concern is pretty similar. I'd go just one notch below though. When, when, when you're applying the Bama standard to the product, I'd go with a nine. If 10's like sack everybody and shut the thing down, <laughs> well, I don't I'm know not, if it's that, but, okay. it's, but it's a nine. No, you're right. It's how we define a 10. <laughs> right. I, I don't think they should fire everybody, but I do think ultimately this is all on Nick Saban. He is, he, he assembled this. He's yeah. the one that hired the coordinators. He's gotten, he's been praised in the past for his coordinator hires. 
for taking coaches whose career was shaky, reviving those careers. Um, I also think in this day and age, if you don't have a quarterback, a really good quarterback, you're not winning a championship. And that's what Alabama football is about, winning championships. So shouldn't Nick Saban have been able to see last year as the season was progressing and Bryce Young was keeping the championship uh, boat afloat that I need a quarterback next season. I really need a quarterback. I mean, he knows what he's got, and he gets he goes after Tyler Buckner, whom Notre Dame had pretty much said, hey, how would you like to be the first backup on our next team? Yeah, who, who Alabama really needed was the guy who replaced Tyler Buckner at Notre Dame, Sam Hartman. Sam Hartman. That's, that's who Alabama needed. Um, yes. And, and maybe made an old a college try at that. Sam Hartman has alluded to the fact that Alabama expressed some interest in him, but for whatever reason, couldn't land him. And yeah, I put it, I put the blame in a number of areas, John, it starts with Saban. You're, you're the CEO, you're the head honcho buck stops there. I don't think his, his offensive coordinator hire was as good as past hires. That's becoming evident. We forget just how many, Maybe we don't forget it, but sometimes I think we take for granted how many good coordinators have rolled through Tuscaloosa. And I'm not saying Saban's, Saban's just nothing without them. Obviously a great coach, but he was undeniably benefited by the presence of Kirby Smart in the beginning of that dynasty. He was undeniably benefited by Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian as the sport shifted into a more offensive direction. Now he's got a run-of-the-mill coordinator. He's got a uh, an offensive line that had vowed to be ruthless. <laughs> it's rudderless. It's not ruthless. And he's got a quarterback who's talented but struggles to read the field in Jalen Milrow, and he's not getting a ton of protection. His wide receivers aren't getting open. Yeah, I'm going with a nine on the level of concern at Alabama because this is this could get worse than ten and two. This this could shift oh. into nine and three or eight and four before before you know it yeah and there was so much off-season hype about that offensive line mm-hmm. uh it's gone from ruthless to toothless it sets us up for a lot of lines but that's it it just isn't that and it, you when you hear this and you're in the media and you read all this stuff it it seeps into your thinking like oh okay this is going to be a, a really stout offensive line i go back to those I guess it may be 2011, 2012 Alabama offensive lines that just overwhelmed opponents. I mean, when they played Notre Dame for the national championship and they went right at the strength of Notre Dame's defense and just knocked it off the ball, that's what I think of with an Alabama offensive line. I watch this offensive line, I guess it's okay, but it's not taking over any games. Yeah, if you and, can't and okay, okay, maybe maybe generous after South Florida racked up five sacks on Saturday. Oh. So in in South Florida's season opener, they played Western Kentucky. Western Kentucky slung it around fifty times. South Florida couldn't muster one sack on those fifty pass attempts <laughs> <laughs> against Western Kentucky, and uh, they managed to sack Alabama quarterbacks a total of of five times. So yeah, Alabama 
big moment on Saturday, big moment uh, for Lane Kiffin, no doubt, who's had himself a very nice tenure at Ole Miss, but still sort of lacks some of those marquee victories. Huge opportunity to get one uh, in that CBS game this afternoon, or excuse me, Saturday afternoon. Speaking of someone who took advantage of an opportunity, John, I want to touch on Florida beating Tennessee in the swamp for the 10th straight time. I was there. The swamp was electric. If you didn't know any better, uh, you might have thought that this was the rivalry in its heyday. The crowd acted like it was. Uh, I've covered not as many games as you have in the swamp, but I've covered probably five or six or seven games in the swamp over the years. This was right up there with as loud as, as I'd heard it. And Florida delivered. You know, we, we'd criticized Florida after its season opener, looked like a poorly coached team, and that loss to Utah looked like it was going to be meek and mild all year long. Well, not on Saturday. The Swamp Magic, again, for Florida, House of Whores for Tennessee. Graham Mertz outplayed Joe Milton. Tennessee's offensive line looked a mess. Florida was better up front on both sides of the ball. And um, it kind of rewires your thinking a little bit on both teams. For me, I'm wondering who it rewires more, though, John. I I would say for me, it's more Tennessee. I don't suddenly think, oh, Florida, they're... uh, you know, they're going to go nine and three now that, that, that week one refocused them. They, they got everything right. I don't think so. I mean, Florida, maybe it's a little bit better than I was giving them credit for after that first game, but I don't all of a sudden think Florida's world beaters to me, it more rewires what I thought about Tennessee, a team I thought could be nine and three this year, knocking on the door of a new year's new year's six. Boy, I don't know. This doesn't look like the Josh Heupel offense we saw last season. No, I, I'm with you. Definitely Tennessee. Florida may turn out to have a good season. I have a lot more respect for Billy Napier after that game. I thought he had his team really well prepared. I think it's tough to come back from a, a glaring loss, that one to Utah, uh, a nationally nationally ranked opponent, opener. So much is going to be made of that game, whether you win or lose. Uh, there will be an overreaction to it, and I overreacted to Florida. It got a its center back for the Tennessee game. Uh, and also Graham Mertz, he's not the quarterback I saw ever so briefly at Wisconsin. And I look at his numbers at Wisconsin. Now he's a super accurate passer. He wasn't that at Wisconsin. So does, Napier deserves some credit for that. Not only that, Mertz looked composed. Compare that with and contrast it with Joe Milton, Tennessee's quarterback. He just looked really composed. He's in a new offense. He looked like he'd been in for a couple of years. So I give Florida a lot of credit, but I think there's a ceiling with that team. I don't think it's suddenly a contender in the SEC East. I thought Tennessee could go 10-2. and two. I even bettered your 9-3 and three prediction. I thought it could be a 10-2 and two team. I thought it would be favored in 10 games and perhaps win them all. Uh, I see it much differently now. And it's not just because of the Florida game. It wasn't just one game. It was back-to-back games. It's playing FCS Austin P and struggling to put the governors away in the second half. It was a 30-13 to game. 
against an FCS opponent that had lost to, that was down 41 to three to Southern Illinois the previous week after three quarters, 41 to three. Good thing Tennessee didn't schedule Southern Illinois. So it's that combination. I didn't think Josh Heupel's offense could look this bad. I just didn't. I'd seen it for 27 games, counting the opener against Virginia. I mean, it it shows up and 40 points is out there waiting on it. Just come get it. Here's 40 points. You can have it. And he gets 30 against Austin P and just looked awful against uh, Florida, Florida. So I look at Tennessee completely differently now. Yeah, and, and give Florida credit for its scheduling, John. And in a moment where a lot of SEC teams still try to, you know, schedule it as soft as possible in the non-conference, Florida plays Florida State every year. They didn't have to. They don't, by league rules, they didn't have to play Utah. They could schedule three cupcakes and uh, coast into things. No, they, they went on the road and played Utah in week one. Meanwhile, at Tennessee, um, Danny White loves himself a charm and soft schedule. He'll, he'll, he'll cancel non-conference games at the drop of a hat. And Tennessee was supposed to play a road game against BYU this season, got that off the schedule and played Virginia instead, which, Hey, that helped on the record. Tennessee got itself an easy win in week one, but you do wonder how much the fact that Florida had been tested by a good opponent early, got them a little more battle tested for this SEC opener. And yeah, I wouldn't have thought, you know, Graham Mertz and and the Florida Gators would be, um, you know, running circles around by comparison, the Tennessee offense in this game, but that's what happened. Mertz, you know, Florida still seems to lack some of that big play threat we were talking about with, with Georgia. I wouldn't say Florida has much of that either, but Mertz's accuracy was just sublime he was a he was amazing on third downs and Billy Napier got conservative in the second half. He said maybe he got too conservative, which I thought was um, an astonishing dose of humility from a coach. Normally, coaches don't admit they made any mistakes, but uh, I thought it it also spoke to the situation, spoke to the new clock rules. I think he felt confidence hanging his hat on the on the defense and a three score lead, and they delivered for him. Defense gave him three fourth down stops. Tennessee couldn't just couldn't make the big plays. And Florida was so good in that first half that it could, could kind of rest on that. And it won't, it won't matter if, uh, if Florida doesn't follow it up against Charlotte, Kentucky and and Vanderbilt. But I mean, Hey, you, you listen to those three I just named. There's a chance here for, I know Kentucky, we're still waiting to kind of find out exactly what they have, but there's a chance here for, for Florida to rattle off several in a row. And like you said, doesn't mean they're winning the East, but it does mean they could could exceed the expectations that we had for them just a couple weeks ago. Certainly, Graham Mertz already has. Before we leave this one behind, John, as Tennessee fans know, and a lot of SEC fans that are plugged into recruiting know, Tennessee has a backup quarterback who is the number one recruit in the nation by some services. Nico Iamaliava, who has appeared as a backup. Joe Milton's been the starter. Now, I did not think Saturday night was the right moment to bring Nico in. In the swamp, the swamp's roaring. Florida's defense playing pretty well. 
that's not the way to introduce your freshman, I didn't think. However, if this is just going to be a mediocre season for Tennessee, and I know Joe Milton's not the only problem, but this is Milton's final year of eligibility. Nico's the future for the Vols. Do you get tempted to hand over the reins here in, in the coming weeks if, if Tennessee continues to stumble around a little bit offensively? Sure, there's a temptation. Uh, but it, you, as you said, it's not a move you make in the swamp. But you also have to wonder, is it a move to make with this offensive line? Mm. Uh, do you want to put a, a freshman in there, no matter how talented? Uh, but I've always valued uh, talent over everything else in sports. Uh, you, you say, okay, he he doesn't manage the offense. He, he doesn't know everything about the offense as well as an experienced guy. Of course he does it. But those really talented guys, and it's our, it's hard to identify which ones sometimes until they actually do it. But you put them in a situation that seems to be over their head, yet they reach up and take it because of their talent, and they rise to the occasion. We see that happen in sports. And I don't know if Nico will do that, but it's something to consider. But you also have to, do you want a player who's who's not built that sturdily, who's pretty thin, do you want him playing behind a, an offensive line that looked as inept as Tennessee's did against Florida? I don't think so. It will help when Cooper Mays, the starting center who's been out all season, when he returns, if he's starting, I would be more apt to make that move. But it looked in the Florida game as though Josh Heupel did not have any confidence in Joe Milton. Hence, Especially extor- not in the first half, I thought. I mean, yeah, they, they didn't stretch the field hardly at all in the first half. But even in the second half, when the game is slipping away, the clock is ticking away, and Tennessee's running the ball, no, you can't win the game that way. Milton managed to hit Brew McCoy with a 55-yard touchdown pass. Maybe he could do it again. Yeah, maybe he throws in the coverage and it's intercepted, but maybe you get a pass interference call. At that point in the game, you had to suspend your disbelief and think, okay, this is all I've got. Let's go down swinging. Tennessee didn't go down swinging. Real quickly, John, because I want to get on to other topics, but before we leave this one behind, your gut reaction, one through 10 level of concern meter for Tennessee? I would say a nine. Nine, okay. I'll use your barometer this time and won't go (laughs) fire everybody, burn down the building, and let's start over 10, as I did with Alabama, and I probably should take that back. Oh, no, there's no, there's no tape back uh, on SEC okay. football uh, unfiltered. That's true. Okay, so I'll go with a nine. Very concerned. All right, I'm going to go with a seven. The only reason I don't go higher is because maybe I shouldn't have been surprised Tennessee lost in the swamp. They always lose in the swamp. <laughs> They're going to get back home here with a couple against UTSA and South Carolina. So I'll I'll hold out some reservation before I go even higher. All right, John, let's uh, let's kind of put a bow on week three of the season with a little feature called One Thing We Liked, One Thing We Didn't. And I'm going to let you bat lead off here. What's what's one thing you liked seeing in week three? 
one thing you didn't like last week? I like seeing Missouri fans show emotion, show how much they cared, run onto the field, celebrate a win over 15th-ranked Kansas State, populate the bank up there behind one of the end zones. Mm -hmm. I'm not used to that with Missouri. Ever since Missouri's been in the league, I've thought, doesn't have an SEC fan base. I think from just being around the SEC now for a while, maybe that's changing. It's becoming a little more hostile, a little more in your face. Look what we just did to you, Kansas State. Then get out of here. I just like that to see that emotion and to see Missouri respond that way on the field and in the stadium. So uh, that to me was significant. Yeah, we're sharing a, a wavelength there because the the one thing I liked I had marked down here was uh, Missouri related as well, which I guess is a good thing since we hadn't talked about that game. One of the more interesting results around the SEC last weekend. I, I had specifically Harrison Mevis, who's known affectionately to Tiger fans as the thicker kicker. This is a 243-pound kicker. If you didn't know any better, you might think he was Sebastian Janikowski. Well, Seabass played at Florida State in so many years for the Raiders. Well, the modern-day Seabass, Harrison Mevis at Missouri, bailed out his coach on Saturday. Now, I have to say, I thought Eli Drinkwitz, he had Missouri well-prepared. So for the first 59 minutes of that game, maybe even 59 and a half minutes of that game, Drinkwitz had a, had a pretty good coaching effort. But boy, things just about exploded there in, in the closing seconds. It, Missouri got an inexplicable delay of game, sort of a brain fart moment for Drinkwitz. Drinkwitz himself called it boneheaded. And that moved, <laughs> that, that turned what would have been a 56 yarder for Mevis into a 61 yarder. Well, then Drink thought he'd, he'd had time to run a quick outplay, get a few of those yards back from the penalty. Brady Cook, who had a fantastic game, Missouri's quarterback, uh, one of his rare incompletions, I guess, on the day, almost threw an interception there on, on the penultimate play. And so things were were falling apart for Missouri. We saw them shoot themselves in the foot for a couple losses last year. Not this time. Thicker kicker comes in, 61, 61 yards for a college football kicker. You know, at first, John, my initial reaction was, Oh boy, fans are storming the field after beating Kansas State, the nation's number 15 team. I mean, Missouri was a was a modest underdog in this game. You're really going to storm the field for that? And then I, you know, in in texting with some friends and and having the benefit of of some more, you know, I took a beat and thought about it. I thought, you know what? If you're a college student sitting on the hill there at Mizzou and you see your 243 pound kicker bail out your coach with a 61 yarder. Why the hell not storm the field? You know, how many times you can be able to say that yeah, we saw our 243 pound kicker walk it off with a 61 yarder. Go ahead. Storm the field. That should be an NIL deal from me. he's the thicker kicker has got to have some kind of burger deal there in Columbia. <laughs> yeah. Here you get your Step double meat, double meat patty here. Triple meat patty. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what my line of thinking was. I just didn't think Missouri fans cared enough to storm the field. All right, one th- one thing you didn't like, John. I'm going to give you a moment to think. I'll, I'll bat lead off here. One thing I'm going to go off the field. One thing I didn't like. It was uh, before 
uh, the Ole Miss game lawsuit dropped, as reported in the, the Clarion Ledger, member of the USA Today Network, a Ole Miss player. Well, we don't know really whether he's a player or not. He says he was kicked off the team. Ole Miss says he remains on scholarship. DeSanto Rollins is suing Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss for $10 million in compensatory damages, $30 million in punitive damages. If you're scoring at home, that's a total of $40 million. Rollins said Lane Kiffin kicked him off the team last spring. Rollins says he was he was dealing with mental health, a mental health situation. He was scheduled to meet with Kiffin. Didn't hold to that meeting. Rollins didn't. Didn't show up to meet with Kiffin until two weeks later. Lane Kiffin did not take well to that. And, and Rollins apparently hit him with the old cell phone recorder. In this day and age, you got to know rule number one, always assume someone's recording you with your cell phone. Uh, I guess Kiffin uh, did not keep that in mind because in the recorded comments in the lawsuit, at least, this is coming from um, you know Rollins' allegations here, Kiffin called him a pussy and uh, basically just gave him a, a dressing down. And he said, you know, in the real world, you have a job. You can't say you have mental health issues and you just don't show up for a meeting with your boss. And I can understand Kiffin's frustration with a player not showing up to a scheduled meeting. And yet at the same time, being a student athlete, in terms of the NCAA, it's not a job. If you have a job, you have salary, you have insurance benefits, retirement package, paid vacation time. Student athletes, for all the advantages they get these days, it's not a job. They don't get those things. And I think you have to be careful as a coach, um, you know, particularly, like I said, when you when you know your, your comments could be being recorded at any time. We've seen this before. Players leak comments that, that coaches made, maybe none quite like this. And it wasn't totally surprised. I don't think Kiffin was the only coach in the world that would react this way to a player missing a meeting. Uh, sort of doubt that DeSanto Rollins is going to get $40 million in damages. It's just a, kind of a sad story all the way around. Sad side of the times that, that you'd take a, a cell phone and kind of privately record a meeting and then and then sue out of the situation. For Kiffin, much has been written. I've contributed to the narrative of him being a more mature coach. And I didn't think there's you know, at least according to what was recorded in the lawsuit here, it doesn't look like a very mature way to handle this situation. I'm not saying you can't process a player, edge him out the door. It happens all the time in college football, but there's a mature way to do it and an immature way to do it. And at least based on these comments in the lawsuit, this doesn't seem like the most mature way of handling this situation. A more mature way would be to say, you know what? might be time to get a fresh start elsewhere. We'll do everything we can to support you. Uh, you still got your, your, your scholarship, your aid, but uh, we, we encourage you to pursue other options. The name calling, the dressing down, I don't know if that flies in the year 2023, John. I, I read that story and I thought of uh, Bear Bryant. I'm probably one of the few people working full-time now who, who interviewed Bear Bryant and covered half a dozen or more of his games. Uh, and I imagine how Bear Bryant might have handled that. Uh, I almost could see him saying, you've got mental health issues. And then just looking at him. And that would be it. 
But he wouldn't have been recorded on a cell phone. He wouldn't have been recorded on a cell phone. And if you had recorded him, you wouldn't have been able to hear him. He spoke in a very low voice. You couldn't couldn't hear. What's that? No, just like this. So he couldn't. Kiffin usually speaks real softly. So that cell phone must have been really close to him. (laughs) I don't know how he didn't notice it was recording him. But Blake, coaches are making more money than ever. Crazy money. Well, there's a reason for that. You've got to deal with a lot more issues now than you did 20 years ago or in Bear Bryant's case, more than 40 years ago. You, and so that requires you to be able to uh, navigate all kinds of different situations. It's not just being on the sideline and, and, and freeing a running back for a wheel route that goes for a 50 yard touchdown pass. You got to say, okay, what am I getting in here to? I mean, uh, alarms need to go off in that situation. And as you said, you just, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that you're struggling with that. And, you know, we have services that can help you and help you get through this. And, and even if you're not on the team, you're still on scholarship. And we'll help you in any way we can. And Lane didn't do that, so he might be in trouble. Yeah. When, golden rule, cardinal rule. When in doubt, always assume you're being recorded on cell phone audio. John, you got something you didn't like last weekend? You, I mean, well, I know you've already put a ten on the on the panic meter at Alabama. Maybe well, I, maybe I Alabama is what you don't like. I didn't like Alabama. I didn't like Tennessee. Uh, I didn't didn't like a lot of things I saw on the field. I, I guess, and you're going with this really big time issue, a $40 million deal, a possible lawsuit. So I feel very insignificant. And I guess maybe I've become too think too much of Spencer Rattler. But when I saw Antoine Stewart, his star receiver, go off the field. Antoine Wells. Antoine Wells. I'm sorry. I'm confiding him with Evan Stewart of Texas A&M. I saw Antoine Wells go off the field. I just, uh, I really felt sorry for uh, felt sorry for Spencer Rattler because here we go. I mean, he's struggling anyway, and there's a, a really big time receiver, a game breaker, scored a touchdown against Georgia. Uh, he's definitely a threat. Somebody you got to account for. Alabama and Georgia could use a receiver like that, and to see him go out with all of South Carolina's problems already, I just thought that was it was something I didn't like seeing. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. And big injury to a star player mm. affecting an already um, hamstrung offense in many ways. All right, week four picks, John. You were terrible last week in the picks. I was fantastic. The season records now. I'm ten and five. You're five and ten. Still plenty of time for me to disintegrate. Don't worry about that. Uh, didn't you? Right. Uh, didn't you yeah. blow a lead last year? I, I may that? have, yeah. yeah. In the uh, we talked about a race to the bottom in the SEC last yeah. year's picks contest between you and I was the race to the bottom, and I sunk a little bit lower than you did. A few SEC games to pick this week. We'll also go outside the conference one, and then give you our locks of the week. We'll start us off: Auburn at Texas A&M. Texas A&M seven point home favorite. Auburn's three and zero. Don't look now, John. They took advantage of a. Largely favorable start to the season, but they did get the road win at Cal a couple weeks ago. We'll find out if this is fool's gold or not. 
I'm a little bit suspecting it might be fool's gold. Of course, everything about the Aggies has been fool's gold the last uh, year and a half, <laughs> two years or so. So I'm a little worried about this pick, but at Kyle Field, uh, I'm going to take Texas A&M not only to win, but cover the seven points. Yeah, I'm with you there. I like Texas A&M at home. I like the way Connor Wigman's playing at quarterback. Mm-hmm. Uh, I alluded to Evan Stewart earlier by mistake. Uh, he he didn't play. For, I don't know why he didn't play uh, in the last game. Didn't need him, but they've got a deep receiving core. I watched Auburn against Cal, and yes, Auburn won the game. And yes, it was very fortunate. Uh lucky almost to win that game. I thought Cal was a better team, but good for Auburn. Those non-conference wins are against power five programs are hard to come by in the SEC this September. So uh, give Auburn credit for that, but I like A&M in that game. Game in St. Louis this weekend. We'll see just how much those Missouri fans are awakened, John. They're still trying to sell this game out at the Dome in St. Louis between Memphis and Missouri. Missouri six-and-a-half-point favorites, and maybe I'm just having buyer's remorse for not picking Missouri against Kansas State, but that one's rewired my thinking on the Tigers. And don't remember, or don't forget, John, I, I was I was tapping that drum a little bit for Missouri in the preseason, saying how much production they'd returned. I got scared off a little bit by that close win against Middle Tennessee. I've been one back over from last weekend, so I'll take mighty Mizzou at the Dome, which we'll see if it gets to sellout status. Uh, I'll say they cover that six and a half points, beat the Tigers of Memphis. I do remember you touting Mizzou in preseason, and I laughed at that touting. Yes, you did. Uh, I'm, who's laughing now? However, uh, my inner cynic really wonders about how Missouri will handle success. Uh, my conclusion, not very well. So I will take, uh, I'll take the points and take Memphis in that one. You think Memphis wins or just loses a close one? Uh, I just think it'll lose a close one, but with the points, I would take. Yeah, I would take okay. Memphis. Yeah, Memphis three zero, three zero clash here in St. Louis. Uh, all SEC game in this one, all SEC. Mississippi State. We didn't talk about this game. It wasn't worth talking about. Uh, I guess unless you're an LSU fan, just uh, totally embarrassed Mississippi State in front of the cowbells Saturday morning. 41-14, Jaden Daniels put on his cape. It's fantastic. Malik Neighbors, <laughs> Mississippi State didn't have anybody in the building that could, could cover him. It was easy, just pitch and catch. Time and time again, LSU won in a route. Mississippi State licks its wounds this week going to South Carolina. I know South Carolina's beat up and bruised. They're four-and-a-half-point favorites, though. Will Rogers struggling out of the gates in this new offensive system Mississippi State Spencer Rattler is the one thing South Carolina has going for it home the home game though for the Gamecocks and trust the quarterback more scared off by what I saw last week for Mississippi State so I will take South Carolina covering the four and a half the only thing I like about South Carolina is Spencer Rattler uh, you know you could put the other guys on a bus right now and leave let him go. Uh, Mississippi State, as bad as it looked against LSU, it was against LSU. Um, I, I think Mississippi State, I, I like Mississippi State with the points there. 
I don't have a lot of confidence in either one of those teams going forward. Those are looking to me like five and seven teams at best, maybe. But that's uh, probably fair. Yeah. So I but I would take you know, two two mediocre to bad teams. I'll I'll take the teams with the points. The team with the points. We've talked about this one a little bit already, John. Ole Miss at Alabama. Ole Miss gave Alabama a challenge last year really just one or two plays away from winning in an upset there. Gave Alabama a test in 2020. Is this finally the time Lane Kiffin breaks through against his old boss for whom he has so much reverence, speaks so highly of? He makes sure Nick Saban has never had a shortage of of rat poison. I don't know if Ole Miss gets done. I'll hedge my bets here and just not pick a winner. But Alabama favored by six and a half. Give me those points in Ole Miss. Uh I don't feel real confident right now of Alabama covering much spread at all. So I'll take Ole Miss in the six and a half points. Yeah, that this is a hard game to pick because Ole Miss, um, Ole Miss has had a lot of injury issues. Wide receiver Trey Harris is out. Uh, mm-hmm. Quinshawn um, Judkins not 100%. Yeah, so how's it going to – it's going to be Jackson Dart running in the teeth of that Alabama defense, which is still okay. Um and I think putting Jalen Milrow back in the lineup will help things. Gosh, that's a tricky one. Um, I think I'll take Ole Miss in the points, though. Mm, I thought you were going to take the team you gave a 10 on the uh, panic meter. But no, you <laughs> you, you panicked at the last minute. You know, if I, originally, I first picked Alabama. And then when we were doing the panic meter segment, I said, well, why am I thinking this team's going to cover six and a half points? It beat South Florida by 14. Um, yeah, so I'll take the points there. So what do we differ on then? Memphis and uh, Missouri and Mississippi State and South Carolina. So, yeah. I'll give you one more chance to differ, John, quickly here because I know our, our producer will be telling us we go too long. Our adoring fans at SEC Football Unfiltered think there's no pod such thing as a podcast episode too long. And if you like what you hear, as always, we appreciate it if you can – Hit that rate, subscribe, or review. Not only do they put a smile on our face, but those good reviews help us get in front of more listeners. So would love it if you could do so. Final couple picks out the door, John. Ohio State, three-point favorite against Notre Dame. Ohio State would have been my preseason number one coming into the season. Don't know that they've played like it too much in the first three games. Don't know what team has. Maybe Michigan, although their schedule has been a bit of a joke coming out here, but Ohio State had its best performance in week three, just crushed Western Kentucky. Maybe they finally have it rolling. I say they win, they cover against Notre Dame, and they reassure me that Ohio State will be in the national championship game. Which one of those quarterbacks would you rather have? Hmm. Probably Sam Hartman. I think I'd rather have Sam Hartman. Rather have Ohio State's supporting cast. I'm fine with Kyle McCord, but I'd, I'd rather have Sam Hartman in Notre Dame. I will take uh, a team I wasn't that high on in preseason, but it looks a little bit like the Oklahoma of old running up big scores. So I will take uh, Jeff Levy's offense in the Sooners and give 14 points to Cincinnati. Okay, but who he's taking in Notre Dame, Ohio State? You, your lock of the week. Oh, is, uh, I thought that was your lock of the week. No, I, we were I'm just picking sorry. a big top 10 clash. What? Oh, I'd take Ohio State too. Okay. Easy breezy, you're taking Ohio State. And then yeah. you just 
You you gave away your lock there. You're taking the Sooners. Yeah, fourteen so I'm sorry point about favorites. That. Uh-huh. That's okay. That's just how much confidence you had in the Sooners, and and how much confidence I have that Virginia is going to slip to zero and four. Picking <laughs> against Virginia was my lock last week. Came through. It's going to come through again. NC State nine and a half point favorite at Virginia. Like I said, Virginia's winless. Not only are they winless, they're struggling to keep games competitive. So I'll take NC State to cover the nine and a half. I know how much you like Oklahoma, so I'm not even going to challenge that pick. You were just off. You, you, your panic meter at Alabama is 10. Your confidence meter is 10 for the Sooners right now. That that could change in a couple of weeks against Texas. I want to get back to you said that our producer says we're going too long. You never told me that. I guess you thought uh, my psyche was so fragile, it might affect my performance if you thought we had been getting a bad review from our producer. So thanks for doing that. Always protect you, John. Always will. I got your blind side. Alabama needs to find someone to get their quarterback's blind side. We'll see if they can get it figured out. Uh, in one of the marquee games this week against Ole Miss, and we will be back to discuss right here with you on SEC Football Unfiltered. Thanks for listening.